So I'm going to begin again, as I like doing, because I think it helps, is by asking you a few questions. And these might sound rhetorical, but they're not. So first, let me ask you, do you enjoy being lied to? What about being told one thing for the exact opposite to occur? Or do you, like, do you just love reading those really long legal statements attached to your mortgage, gym memberships, or these online subscriptions that seem impossible to get out of? What do all these have in common? Usually it's deceitful tactics of gaining wealth, feigning collaboration or friendship, or deals, which you've probably heard, too good to be true. Sounds good on the front ends, but it's really something else on the other end. And maybe not to the same degree, but you've done the same thing. Have you ever buttered somebody up? And you're trying to get them to do what you want them to do. I bet you have, because I've done this. A prime example, and this is directed at you kids, when you call your parents, and those especially who went off to college, when you call your parents, parents, what do you think happens, or what do you really know is happening when they begin the conversation like this? Mom or dad, do you know how much I love you? What do you think's coming after that? Not a reason why I love you, but something to get out of you. You're like, do you really love me, or are you just trying to get something out of me? Use flattering speech to get what you really want. Or you promise more than you know you can deliver to get what you want. Our police force, FBI, and other law enforcement agencies, though they do this legally, they kind of, they kind of play on this. They do something of this ilk. They pose as someone who wants to engage in a drug deal to catch drug traffickers. They use this on people because they know it works. In the story of the adulterous woman, you kind of get this thing with the scribes and the Pharisees. They tell Jesus one thing when they really want something else. They use the woman in order to get to Jesus. They really don't care about this one. They don't care about the Mosaic law. They don't care about its function. What they want to do is they want to take down Jesus. Are they really worried about the law and adultery? Because they actually get the law wrong. That's not what the law says. Because in more ways than one, you'll hear how they break the law just as you've broken the law. And use the law, especially for them to convict Jesus and use the law in the same way. And she's a pawn, this woman is, though she's a sinful pawn at that. And they use her in their game, an example, we too often perpetuate ourselves. And it's really an extension of the reaction to Jesus' teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is right before this, beginning of John 7 through the end. Because he comes to the fulfillment of our temporary dwelling place and proclaims that he's the true temple that we enter into for fellowship with God. And the leaders... You can kind of see them scheming. They're looking for every which way. How can we indict this guy? How can we get this guy? How can we kill Jesus? 
And then Jesus uses this to save you because you have indicted, you have condemned, and you killed him by breaking the law and using people for your own gain. We're going to see how these two relate. We're going to see first that Jesus proclaims his kingdom. John 7, 53-8-2. And it's a highly symbolic scene. We don't catch it up front, but the Mount of Olives is used here for a very specific purpose, and he continues teaching his temple. And second is you break his law. From verses 3-9. to A woman caught in adultery, breaking God's law, is then used by the Jewish leaders who then break God's law. And lastly, is Jesus calls you to himself, verses 10 to 11. And she's given the same opportunity that you are today. Believe in Jesus who took on your sin and shame as he took on hers, and those who use his law, like the leaders did, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, and broke the law, like the woman did. And so I hope throughout this you hear that Jesus calls lawbreakers and law twisters to himself by taking on your sin and giving you his perfect record under that same law. We'll begin with point one, Jesus proclaims his kingdom. Immediately on the heels of Nicodemus, his warning to the Pharisees, that's, the, that's verse 51 and 52 of John 7, he tells them, he's like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you following proper legal procedure? And they're talking about the Mosaic procedure. This is not what Moses tells you to do. You're already kind of, you're kind of in a, a, a pre-told what they're trying to do. And so you can imagine the Pharisees and high priests, which is the end of John 7, when they each go to their own homes, they're probably frustrated. Like, we can't get this guy. Everyone's starting to believe in this guy. Everyone's following him, even our own guards. Even Nicodemus, like the head honcho, even he's starting to listen to this guy. How are we going to get him? So they're wondering what's to come. Because they look at Nicodemus like, even you've been duped. You're, you're the guy. You're, you're the smartest guy of the bunch. Even you've been duped. Even you've been lied to. With this crazy religious traitor, they think. This guy who claims to be God on earth. And so the Pharisees and high priests are not having it. They, they, must, they must be going back home and they're probably regrouping. Probably thinking, we've got, we got to think of something else to get them with. They're certainly not going to forget because this right here happens the morning after of the Feast of Tabernacles. Both their underguards and Nicodemus, and in a real, he's a very real sense, like I said, the top dog at this time, begin wondering about Jesus. So you've you, you got to kind of put yourself in their shoes first. They're, they're thinking, how am I going to catch him? How are we going to catch him? Got to get him some way. Because he's, he's turning everybody away from us and towards him. So they all go to their respective homes, likely plotting what they'll do next, but Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. And this location is not visited all that often in the New Testament, but it is visited in the Old Testament. It's a place where David weeps after Absalom, who's the third son of David, betrays his father. It's when Absalom betrays David. 
and foments conspiracy against them in 2 Samuel 15. And David actually writes a few psalms to this effect. And the Mount of Olives is also in Zechariah 14. If you remember last week's sermon, that's also quoted. The Feast of Tabernacles is quoted in Zechariah 14. That's where the Lord weeps over Jerusalem and her fallen state. So Mount of Olives is used as a weeping place. It's where they go, it's where the Lord goes, where David goes to weep over Jerusalem. And so Don doesn't tell you, again, the Gospels don't tell you, they show you. It's kind of showing you, like, this is, Jesus is weeping. Jesus is wondering, what, what am I going to do? Where are these people going? And the astute reader is going to say, why is Jesus going to the Mount of Olives? Because he was at the temple, and he, he sees this temple is filled with faithless leaders. People are pining for the teaching of Jesus. Like, we haven't gotten this. Our leaders aren't giving us the gospel. Our leaders aren't giving us Jesus. But it's about to get a whole lot worse. Because this temple is about to be defiled. Because Jesus is not some stoic philosopher who doesn't feel, but he bitterly weeps. He weeps when there's no teacher in the land. But Jesus is not impotent. He's not unable to rectify this situation. He's going to rectify it. So after his jaunt to the Mount of Olives, he descends and comes back to the temple, probably the same place he just left, with the train of people who've been following him in his wake. As Peter confessed at the end of John 6, those who were following him leaving the Jewish authorities, without an audience, they're probably thinking the same thing that Peter did. Where else are we going to go? This temple is, is famished for God's word. Who else has the words of life but this Jesus? And so they follow him because he proclaims the kingdom, not that is coming, but actually has come. They, they look at the kingdom. They look at the, the king of the kingdom in front of them. Because Jesus is the kingdom. The king and the kingdom. So they've had time to plot that the Jewish leaders do, and so Jesus returns to the temple and your question should be, how will the leaders, the Jewish leaders, attempt to catch Jesus in the acts? How might you have done the same thing? How much you have broken it, and how much you by using his law to try to catch Jesus, or try to like lift up yourself? This brings us to point two, you break his law. In the same way that both the Pharisees and this woman does. And that starts in verse 3. But before we get to verse 3, I want to point something out. If you're a Jewish leader, so think, think this with me. If you're a Jewish leader, a teacher of the law, someone not just well-versed, like I know the Old Testament really well, I know the stories, but who has it memorized, down to the T, the entirety of the first five books, at least the Old Testament, if not the entirety of the Old Testament, all of these, the scribes and the Pharisees, both have this stuff down flat. They could tell you. So let me ask you, how well do you think they know the law? Pretty well. A Pharisee and scribe not only have every command, precept, and judgment memorized, but they're the ones who scrupulously uphold it. They're the ones who tell anybody who break the law, you broke this, you have to give a sacrifice, or you have to rectify it in some way, shape, or form. 
Like they're the, they're the law upholders. They're the ones who tell you, you broke the Sabbath. You broke this. You broke that. So we think they would know when somebody broke it or when they themselves break it. But that's precisely what's so odd about these verses. Beginning with verse 3. Because in verse 2, what time marker does Jesus or does John give you at the start of these events? This is the break of dawn. This is, this is 6 a.m. This is really early in the morning. So what follows is either incredibly odd or entirely disturbing. Added to that... It's pretty circumstantial if they just happen to find this person, this woman, committing adultery. It doesn't just happen in the middle of the street. They don't just look at somebody and say, oh, you're committing adultery. That stuff doesn't generally open. It doesn't happen in the open. Like the Samaritan woman in John 4, no one does this in the open. So how do they find her? Is the first question you should be asking. The text doesn't give us much information, but you, you kind of can't help but wonder, like, what role did you play in this? Also, what on earth are they doing bringing her inside the temple? Because that's where they go. Have you ever wondered that? This, this conversation happens in the temple. What can you not do before coming into the temple? Don't commit adultery because you're impure. You can't go in the temple. And can somebody touch somebody who's impure? That impurifies yourself. If someone has been caught in adultery, what does the Mosaic law say you do to such a person? Or actually, persons. As you take them out of the camp, you get them out of the temple, you get them out of the sanctuary. And then you put them to death. You cleanse the people of the camp of those who are impure. And they're still under this Mosaic law. That's what they should be doing. But what do they do? They bring impurity into the temple. They bring somebody who had just committed adultery that very morning into the temple. There is no situation in the law that you bring an adulteress and an adulterer into the temple. You're defiling the temple. The Jewish leaders, by bringing her in, are already defiling the temple by bringing her in. And lastly, but there's so much more, is by bringing the woman in, probably by grabbing her, you can't imagine anywhere else that, she, that they do this, they're defiling themselves. They're purifying themselves and then walking into this temple impurifying this temple. It's not because she in and of herself is defiled, but her act defiles her. And touching her transfers impurity to them. That's what impurity does. It defiles everything it touches. There's so, so much wrong here. And they continue in verse 4. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So you begin wondering, well, who caught her? How did you find her? They don't just commit this stuff out in the open. The text doesn't give us an answer, but it does leave you wondering. 
Because what do you know about Pharisees and scribes? Who do they not hang out with? They don't hang out with sinners. They don't hang out with adulterers. They aren't seen around sinners. They aren't seen around adulterers. They don't hang out with people they think are prone to sin. That's not their group. And so you start thinking, how did you happen upon this woman who, who committed adultery? How did that just occur? And in verse 5, another infraction of the law perpetrated by the scribes and Pharisees added on to the sin of adultery by the woman. These people bring this woman caught in her sin, know the, law, know the law like the back of their hand, and so you think they'd never mess it up. But they actually do mess up the law. Because nowhere in the law does it say stone an adulteress. Never says stone. What it does say is put to death. That is still changing God's law. And it also adds to that as well. And you might be thinking, that's just a tiny little addition. They're just inferring. Because they miss a crucial portion of the law. They don't just add something. They actually take something away from the law here too. They miss a crucial portion of the law on adultery. Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, they pin this. Because it says not only the adulterist woman, but the adulterer is to be killed. And they just take the woman. They don't worry about the husband or the man. They conveniently leave out the portion of both texts on the man who's supposed to be stoned as well, or supposed to be killed as well. They just said, we're going to take her. They're using her. And a flashback should occur to a similar addition and subtraction in Genesis 3, because they're kind of replaying this. When the woman, Eve, is confronted by the serpent, what does she do? She adds to the law. says, I can't eat this or touch it. And the Pharisees are doing the same exact thing that Eve just did. She adds to the law. So you don't play with God's law. You don't change it. You don't add it. You don't subtract to it. But these leaders are. Those who are supposed to be super, super smart in the law miss it. And probably, particularly, they're trying to. In a culture where law is not only an immovable standard, but at a questionable suggestion, as, as this culture is, where law is not something you uphold, but something that kind of gives you a good suggestion. Like speed limit. 65 is like, oh, that's at least 65, if not a little bit more. I think this should hit you hard. Because this is the human condition under the dominion of sin. You do what the Pharisees do. You do what the scribes do. You play with the law. Or it's like, well, the law is good, but the law is not, it's not compared to my law. not compared to what I think the law should be. All of us do this. Either you look at the law and says, I can do better. That doesn't really cover the things I want to be covered. Or it goes too hard on this or, or not hard enough on this. Or that may have worked for them, for, for them then, but I think we have to update the law today. I think we have to kind of play with this a little bit today. Or it's so confining, barbaric, and backward. How could you possibly do this? How could you possibly uphold this? 
You can hear people saying, and you might have said this yourself, I want to free and liberate from the shackles of any law that limits my freedom. Because we all have this desire. It's not just out there, it's, it's within your hearts. We all have this desire to play around with this. And that's what the Jewish leaders are doing. They're, they're playing with God's law. Those who should be well-versed in upholding God's law are playing with it. They're bending it towards their standard, just as you bend the law towards your standard. And why did they do this? Do, do you think they really care about God's law? They really care about God's perfection? Really care about upholding the sanctions, purifying the temple, making sure everyone follows every jot and tittle of God's law? It's not in the least. It's not, they don't care at all about God's law. They care about looking good, about looking perfect, about looking holy. That's what verse 6 says. Because why do they do this? They don't care about the woman. They don't care about adultery. They don't care about the law. What do they care about? Taking down Jesus. That's it. They use the law. They use the woman to take down Jesus. It says, verse 6, They said this to test him, not to uphold God's righteousness, not to faithfully render God's law, but to test him. The one who wrote the law, Test them on it. They bring in the adulterous woman defiling the temple to charge the temple. Because that's who Jesus is. He's the temple. They're charging him. They don't care at all about God's law, not the adultery, but by taking down God in flesh. So how does Jesus respond? You just slap him and say, get out of me? Get out of my, get out of my way? He writes upon the ground. They so concerned about the law of God don't recognize God incarnates standing in front of them nor how Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai. The law according to Exodus 31.18 was written by the finger of God. So when Jesus comes down, bends down onto the, onto the floor, onto the ground, starts writing this, he's saying, I'm the guy who wrote it. I did that. You think you're playing with it. You think you know better than me who wrote it. When Jesus crouches down to write upon the ground, when questioned about the law of God, because that's what they're asking him, what does, the law, what does the law of Moses say? He says, I wrote that. I know exactly what it says. He presents himself as the God who wrote that. And so in verse 7, they continue pestering him. When Jesus calls out to them, let him who is out sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Because if you have God incarnate in front of you, he's the guy who can do it. Because who's the only one who doesn't back away? Jesus doesn't back away. Because if they were really worried about stoning her, about putting her to death, they would have brought both the adulterer and the adulteress in here. But they don't care. It's an eerily similar situation to what they want to do when Jesus claims later in chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Because they actually do pick up stones and try to stone him. But here they don't. He stoops down again, to write upon the ground in verse 8. 
And I'll be honest, what I'm about to say is not in the text. But, but I think it's hard not to think this. When Moses is confronted with the sin of Israel and crafting the golden calf, which is the first time they wrote the law, the first time God wrote the law, Moses received it, come down to the mountain, and says, Israel and Aaron, playing around with this golden calf, receiving the covenant of law as a witness against them, what does Moses do? Breaks them on the ground. A, a, a visceral reaction to their breaking the law. Only to receive them again a few verses later. When God writes upon the tablets, gives them to Moses to be placed in the Ark of the Tabernacle. I think the same thing is happening here. He says, I'm the one who wrote it, and I'm the one who wrote it again. Because you sinned. Because you broke the law. When Jesus stoops down and does it again. And what's remarkable is everyone leaves. Besides the woman. But she's with sin. Which is kind of remarkable that she stays. She who was caught in adultery is the only one left alone. Doesn't mean she's without sin. It means something different. Because as the rest of chapter 8 bears out, Jesus' first coming, he says this right after, his first coming is not as judge. His first coming is as savior. His second coming is as judge. As he's, about to render the, he's about to render to the judgment. He's about to render to the verdicts. And he's about to give her an opportunity to trust in him. The very same Jesus left alone with the woman, so highly evocative of another account four chapters earlier. The only other woman he's left with in the Gospel of John is, is the Samaritan woman of chapter 4. You get basically the same account here. Proclaiming the same to you. Leads us to our last point. Jesus calls you to himself. Jesus is left alone with this woman, a sinner, because the only people he saves are those who recognize, I'm a sinner. And let this scene be a salve to you. Put yourself in her shoes. Because she represents those who recognize, I am a sinner. I broke God's law. I'm caught. I'm broken. People have mocked me. And the Savior comes near to her as he comes near to you. He stoops down to your level and he starts talking to you. What's the first thing he says to her? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He's telling her, I know they didn't catch you and bring you to the temple because they cared about the law. They wanted to take me down. They're actually not worried about you at all. They don't care about you. They used you. And he speaks kind of the same way to the adulterous, or to the Samaritan woman, the adulterous woman, in John 4. And the same kind of speech happens in John 8. It's, it's just too glorious to say only once. Jesus only sits with sinners. That's it. The only people who leave are those who think I can use God's law for my advantage. Who say, like, I'm the righteous one in this situation. But the only one who stays is the one who knows I am a sinner. I broke the law. 
He doesn't tell her, well, if you work for a little bit, clean yourself up, kind of clean your reputation, really study the law, then one day, you'll be good enough. Then you can come to me. Doesn't wait for her to have a strong record of a monogamous relationship with a man whom she's married to for him to speak with her. I'm going to speak to you right where you're at. And she finally talks in verse 11. It's only two words in the original. When he asks her, who condemns you? And she says, no one. And those could be some of the most glorious words for you who are a Christian. No one condemns you. And that's right here. To the, really, like you can say, the only sinner in their eyes. No one condemns me. And what does he say to her? Neither, neither do I condemn you. You who sin, which is all of you, you who shipwrecked your life, you've never tasted a day where you're like, I've been doing good. I've been following pretty well. I look good in front of other people. You who've only ever mocked Jesus, these words come to you who've confessed him. Not because you've confessed him, but they cause you to confess him. Because Jesus comes not to condemn, but to save. Not to say he doesn't call sin, sin. Because he still tells her, don't sin any longer, presuming what she did was a sin. Because the law condemns, as she well knows, and Jesus fulfills the very same law that he might save you. And that's the glorious news of the gospel. The news comes to those of you, like the Jewish leaders, the same people who twist the law. It doesn't say only lawbreakers, but law twisters. Those are the ones I came to save too. To fit your standard, your narrative, your desires. Like, I can use the law for my own good. Who use people, like they use this woman, though she's a sinner, to condemn Jesus or condemn whatever it is that calls you out. Because if someone comes to you with words that expose you and your ultimate authority is yourself, like these leaders, you kind of have to demonize them. You kind of have to push them down a little bit. Say, no, 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 no. I'm following my own law. I'm following my own truth. And you place yourself atop the pedestal of authority. And this news also comes to those like this woman who are caught in the midst of her sin because it just happened that morning. Brought to the tribunal of justice, the very God incarnates, and he tells her, not guilty. This verdict doesn't come other than through the work of Jesus. He doesn't just say not guilty, saying, you're good, you're good to go, I don't worry about it. He's saying, I'm about to take that on. I'm about to take on your adultery on myself. I'm about to take your record on myself. I'm about to take on your record on myself. To take upon all the sins of those who, like this woman, break the law, or like the Pharisees, twist the law. He came bearing all your sins on the cross, died with those sins, and rose again that the Spirit of God might place on your account 
his record, and you're told you're not guilty, and more than that, you've got Christ's righteousness. You've got his account. You have his record. Where you can go like this woman, with a clean record, or not just a clean record, you go with a perfect record. When he says, go sin no more, it's because you can't sin in my eyes any longer. Your sin is no longer condemned in my eyes. I've paid for those sins. Now you can go in the gratitude of what I've done for you. It's not that you have to be perfect from here on out, but you're now treated as perfect according to my law. Your, your sin may still have earthly circumstances, but in God's eyes, in God's law, you're perfect. Knowing the law no longer condemns you, this law for the Pharisees, for the Samaritan woman, for this adulterous woman, and for like you, can now be your guide. No longer condemning you, but this law now guides you. Let's pray. Lord, you look at us as we have perpetrated the same sins as both these groups. That we have defiled ourselves, that we've used your law, we've defiled your law, we've defiled you. We've defiled you and you alone, as your psalmist says, as David says. But Lord, when you look upon us, those who confess your name, you look upon us as righteous in your Son. We've made a mess of our lives. We've sinned against your law. We've done nothing good. Your Son has come down, paid paid the price for our sins, forgiven us of our sins, and given us his record, and says, go on now. You're free. I've paid. You can now live in light of my grace. The law no longer condemns you law no longer condemns me, but frees you. It guides you. It's your love and your delight, not your fear. And Lord, you did that for us. Your law both exposes us and it guides us. Lord, may we come out of here knowing that your grace is sufficient for us. While in the midst of our sin, you came and saved us. And we go out with gratitude. We pray that we know that this is true of us and we live in light of this and through this and empowered by this. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.